A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Bip Show. I'm Paul Colgan. Delighted to be here. We're recording this episode at 4pm in Sydney on the 5th of June 2020. Bip is for business, investing and policy. We're going to talk markets, economics, all the other stuff that feeds into it. I'm joined by James Whelan, investment manager and macro strategist at VFS Group. Always good, Paul. Great to be here, mate. And also on the line from Amsterdam, Ken Vexler, managing director and chief investment officer at Acumen Management. G'day, Ken. How do, folks? Good to be here. Now, our guest, our first guest in what I'm hoping will be a long line of excellent guests on the show, um, we're starting with the bar high, one of Australia's best-known economists. She has had an illustrious career as a currency strategist and economist in major Australian financial institutions and is now chief economist for Oceania at EY here in Sydney. It's Joanne Masters. Joe, great to have you on the show. It's absolutely fantastic to be here. Really thrilled. Uh, Okay, in this show, we're going to pick up a bit of where we left off last week uh, and look at this face-ripping rally uh, we've seen in stocks and other risk assets, uh, including the Australian dollar. Um, And as part of that, GDP for Q1 was out this week. We're going to look at that. Uh, We're also going to look at the situation unfolding in the US. Uh, You know, communities are divided, so there's soldiers on the street, the White House, House seems at sea. Businesses are being looted in cities across America, but stocks are up. Um, now, um, we will talk about it um, if and when this might invite a rethink by investors and what the other implications may be, because we shouldn't forget um, that for the current problems, the US economy has been on a pretty impressive trajectory for some time. Joe, um, let's start with the global outlook before we get into some of the details about Australia's GDP report. Um, financial markets, um, just looking at asset prices, seem optimistic that growth is going to return to at or about trend. Um, what's your interpretation of what's uh, happening there and how do you see it playing out? So I think one of the big issues at the moment is that we're focusing on growth rates, which is what we've always done, right? Uh, So the IMF, for example, for global growth is forecasting minus 3% this year. That's probably a bit optimistic. Uh, They themselves ran three additional scenarios. All three were to the downside. And even the second one had global growth at minus 6%. So it gets pretty bad pretty quickly. To put that in perspective, uh, since World War II, we've had one calendar year where global growth was negative, 2009, not surprisingly. In 2009, the global economy contracted by 0.1%. We're talking about a minus three to minus six. Now, the flip side is uh, the IMF and most private sector forecasters have 5.8% growth next year. So it sounds like a really, really big rally, the the so-called V-shaped recovery. But what we need to remember is the size of the economy that that 5.8% bounce comes from is much smaller. So actually, even on those numbers, the size of the global economy at the end of 2021 is no bigger than it was at the end of 2019. And I feel like that's the piece that people are missing. The growth rate looks like a big recovery. Markets are forward-looking. To be fair, the world is also still awash with liquidity and it's very, very cheap and it's going to remain that way. Uh, But I think it's this, when you look at the chart of growth rates, it it looks really good. The reality is going to feel very, very different. Um, What do you think some of the risks are there? So there are um, some encouraging signs, um, you know, in terms of 
governments have shown a willingness. Uh, and, you know, let's not just talk about Australia, where there has been an enormous fiscal deployment, but governments around the world have seen, have, be, have been willing to try and rise to this challenge in terms of managing the economy. Um, so, um, but wh- where do you see in- encouraging signs at first, and then where do you see risks or problems? So I think you're absolutely right around the policy response. It's been, by any measure, remarkable. Uh, Coordinated, large, uh, well-targeted for the most part. Uh, We learnt a lot from the GFC, right? Go hard, go early, pull every lever you can. Um, In Australia and in many economies, we've done that. I mean, the stimulus in Japan, for example, is almost as big as what we've seen here in Australia. Uh, I guess when we think about... What are the encouraging signs? Well, at the moment, they're primarily on the health front. So we're stabilising that infection rate uh, in most economies. Uh, So that's what has to happen first. This is first and foremost a health crisis. I guess if we look at China, that's giving us the best indicator of how things may play out. Um, First economy to lock down, first one to unlock. Um, And it's really interesting there. There are some very encouraging signs on the production side. So factories are back up and working, you know, steel production's back, coal demand's back, uh, congestion on the roads is back to pre-COVID levels, uh, the PMI's back above 50. Uh, It's not roaring away, but those are all good things. But what we're not seeing in China is a is a spending consumption recovery. So that confidence is, is feeding through and that's the missing piece. And I think that's the piece to, to watch for over the next couple of months. So, and it's also obviously um, important for, uh, you know, economies like Australia where we sell a lot of stuff to China. I mean, not just resources, but other things as well. So particularly our agriculture sector um, very has in recent years has become quite exposed to to growing Chinese demand. Um I mean, not in absolute terms relative to the overall size of the economy, but certain for, certainly for individual businesses where they've pivoted towards uh, selling stuff to the emerging Chinese consumer class, um, which has been getting steadily richer for decades now, right? Um, so that is, you know, if China is kind of the truck for the trailer of, of global uh, growth, um, that, that has been um, somewhat encouraging to see. Um, but still, um, nasty outlook for China... Um, what are some of the other uh, risks there in, in terms of things you, you see could potentially, things you'd be watching for, for further problems beyond the obvious uh, second wave um, of, of infections? Yeah. Sure. So maybe just take a step back. One of the positive comments I'd make about China is if you're able to put the current situation, which is very confronting to one side, some of those longer term fundamentals for China remain really positive. So China and Asia more broadly still has an incredibly young population. In most Asian countries, the average age is in in the late 20s. Um, So, you know, incredibly young population and many are still moving into the middle class. So that structural shift, it may get, um, it may slow in the next couple of years because of COVID, but that long-term 10, 20, 30-year trend is absolutely still there. And I still see Asia as the driver of growth over the next few decades Um, In terms of the risks in the near term, you know, there's always many with China and one still sits around the banking sector. Uh, Shadow banking, uh, the level of debt in China, it's quite hard to get much visual on that, Um, you know, and largely sort of government influenced or government owned, which gives them a bit of breathing space. But there's still a lot of leverage in China that may at some point need to deleverage. James, I might bring you in here. Um Pandemic, uh, you know, has changed um, a lot of the way we, um, a lot about the way we behave. Mm. 
Um, so how are you thinking, thinking about this? Okay, so, so I was thinking – well, I was thinking – I was reading through a very well-written note here by someone who happens to be sitting next to me, Joe, um, just with regards to the, uh, the quarterly update from yesterday. And there was a note – there was a piece in here just with regards to the savings rate of the standard Aussie punter. So the savings rate, which jumped to a 5.5% uh, of disposable income. This and same similar sort of thing has happened over in the states and 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 a lot of the places around there. Now I'm always into the big behavioural change things. The day to day the day to day stuff with the investing is is I try and skip over that. But obviously this is this is a big shift in people are storing their money. Is that what what are the flow through effects of 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 that storage and stockpiling of cash in a place where and the the reason why they keep dropping interest rates is to try and get us all to spend. It hasn't worked in Japan. They've been trying for so, such a long time. But people and the consumer is still tr- going to save as much as they can. I think that's a really important trend and that's going to be a really big uh, difference between how we exit this current recession and how we've done so from previous recessions. So consumer spending's you know, nearly 60% of economic activity. Our household was already holding enormous amounts of debt before COVID hit, 190% of GDP, one of the largest in the world, record for Australia. I mean, you know, some people don't have any debt, so think about just what that means for the people that have debt. Uh, That's not true in other economies. In the US and the UK, the consumer deleveraged. They paid back their debt after the global financial crisis. We didn't do that. Now, Now our household sector is facing, you know, high unemployment, job insecurity, low wage growth, falling house prices, volatile equity markets, it's no wonder they are boosting precautionary savings or trying to pay down debt. And I guess the issue is that it means if you try to stimulate the household sector, which is so big and so important in your economy, you're actually not going to necessarily get a big bang for your buck. Uh, And we're seeing that, right? We had the $750 uh, payment to all Centrelink um, receivers in July, and some of the bank data shows that you know over half the people saved it. Uh, so yeah. that's going to be a big Which challenge. Is remar- absolutely remarkable. Um, but yeah, I mean, there certainly wasn't the same conversation as there was back in the GFC about um, people being excited to get their you know Ken Henry sponsored uh, television you know um, from Harvey Norman. My novelty um, check, my my novelty GFC novelty check went to Visa, and <laughs> and uh, as I as I joked, just cut out the middleman, just pay it straight to just straight pay it straight to the Visa people. They need it more than I do at the moment. Um, and any novelty check that I get, free money, any free money that I get this time is probably going to go to Mastercard because I've changed my credit card provider. I think mine went to a medical bill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't qualify because I'm just a permanent resident. Nor no, did I. I still exist. <laughs> well, it is important to be targeted in your fiscal <laughs> stimulus. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, all right. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about GDP. Um, Joe, um, it's worth a bit of a refresher here on where we were in January. Uh, it's easy to forget um, that uh, things were very rough at the start of the year, um, and. I think this is important because uh, Australia went into this crisis not in the best shape, um, but you know this year has been so defined by this period of all of us sitting in our house for months on end um, that uh, it is easy to forget that uh, about the conditions at the start of the year. So maybe you can take us back there to start off. Absolutely. So the data we got this week was for the March quarter. Uh, which feels like a lifetime ago. 
Um, you cast your mind back, we had the bushfires and then um, in early February we started to restrict our international borders. But actually it was only in the last two weeks of March did the COVID restrictions, so domestic travel restrictions, closing our international border and introducing social distancing and also something that was unimaginable and that is closing big parts of our economy, like closing them down. We actually did that in the space of two weeks. Um, so when we look at Q1, it's kind of important to remember all of those pieces. If we step back and just look at the broader trend, our economy had been growing below potential growth for three years. Now, potential growth is what economists call the growth rate that you need to bring the unemployment rate down and to lift inflation. Both are good things. So we've been running subpar basically for three years. Um, more concerningly for me, though, the base for growth was so narrow. So growth was being driven by only two parts of our economy, public spending and net exports. Uh, so we have a term called private domestic demand, which is basically domestic consumption and investment. That was going backwards even before this crisis hit. Now, the other really interesting thing in the data for me is, you know, we got a quarterly contraction. Great. We tick a box. Um what was most striking for me, though, was that, as I said, those COVID restrictions only really impacted two of the 12 or 13 weeks of the quarter, and yet that was so big that it influenced the overall number. Mm. So you can just imagine what the June quarter, where COVID will impact you know, 12 out of 12 weeks or 8 out of 12 weeks, depending on which of the restrictions you look at, how big an impact that is going to have. Are you forecasting at the moment for the June quarter? Well... Pinpoint forecasting is pretty tough at the moment, but I think we will see a contraction of something like 8% for the quarter. Things are moving really quickly, but certainly somewhere between minus 6 and minus 10 in the quarter alone. I actually... This might, sound, this might sound silly, but I actually don't think it matters whether it's minus 6 or minus 10. Both are really, really, really bad. Yeah. Well, and one of the things... Uh, Ken, I might uh, ask you about this because... You know, we, we talked about this last week, is this idea that kind of the data at the moment kind of doesn't matter because it's just crazy. They're massive outliers. You know, we're talking, um, you know, six sigma departures from uh, from the... So, what, what do you... I mean, you... Um, I, I'll ask you about uh, Europe in a bit, but uh, what, what did you make of, um, of the numbers? Or did you pay any attention to it? Yeah, I think... I think it's important to understand, you know, when, when talking the context of the data, what we're talking it, about it in relation to, we're talking about market performance, what's it doing day-to-day, stocks, equity, you know, currencies and the like, or are we talking about, you know, real-world applications as far as people having a job, not having a job, being able to pay the mortgage, etc. As far as, um, well, my take on, on the Australian GDP, no surprise. I mean, for, for all the reasons and more that, that Joe uh, outlined and, and frankly, as, as you know, when we spoke, you know, last year or year before, it, to my mind, it's a long time coming. It's just been given that tip over the edge initially with the bushfires and now COVID. Um, I think what's important, I think Joe touched on, is to highlight that coming out of this recession, when when Australia eventually does, it's not going to be a walk in the park. It's not going to be as uh, methodical as it might have been in, in previous uh, iterations, although that was 30-odd years ago. And, and she was right, or she is right, rather, in saying that um, the, the knock-on wealth effect that traditionally Australia has seen, be it from household 
from from housing you know pricing going up and and the confidence that's given uh, Australians in general and the leverage they have you're not going to see that now they're going to have to pay off debt they're going to have to pay off mortgages they're going to be far more uh, reticent about going for another meal and putting it on Instagram or going to the icebergs for a $60 cocktail or, or whatever people do in Bondi these days. It's that sort of thing. So people, you, you're going to see the proliferation of, of your deliveroos and your Uber drivers um, and people keeping their hands in their pockets. So I think that's the key. I think forget the data we've seen so far. It's more about the exit path and what the data is going to look like on the way out. And I think that is going to be fairly important. So and related – can I just jump in? Yeah, of course. As always. Um, re- related to that, I, I absolutely agree, right? And economists have all these letters that we use to describe the recovery profile, right? So the V, the U, the W, the L, which you never want to see. Um, but at EY, we've been talking about a sawtooth recovery that sort of looks like a really fat U, but it has this bot- bumpy bottom. And that's exactly what I think we're going to see. And I think for households as well, it's not just around wanting to tighten the purse strings and be careful with your money, but actually uh, we have a new consumer survey, uh, the EY Future Consumer Index, and the first one was in the early uh, first week of May, and it showed, um, you know, seven in ten Australians said nominated it would be months or years before they would be comfortable going to a pub, going to an outdoor sporting game, going to the gym going to a cinema and the numbers were even more extreme for getting on a plane and the vast majority of respondents expect another COVID outbreak in the next six months. So it's not just I'm worried about my spending, I'm actually kind of worried about being out and about and we may not see that in this first couple of weeks as we ease restrictions but it doesn't take much for people to suddenly feel very anxious about their health again. Um, It certainly is going to be a very challenging time. We're going to take a quick break uh, on that very cheery note and uh, we'll we'll come back and look in more detail at what is absolutely um, uh, a a big question on everybody's minds uh, for the rest of this year. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the BIP Show. I'm Paul Colgan. I'm here with James Wheeler, uh, Joanne Masters and Ken Vexler. Uh, James, um, the path of this recovery. Now, uh, the, with regards to the recovery, with regards to, Joe, something that you said with uh, your, was it Future Consumer Index, Index, which is very nice. So the I'm going to call it the, the FCI. I'm assuming that's Absolutely. what you, you guys are calling it. The, uh, the EYFCI, which is, which is, which is great. Um, great name too. If you ask someone in the middle of a two-week rainstorm when – it's going to stop raining, they'll say never. So it is entirely likely, just to get it more into a cheery sort of upbeat side of the note, that as 
things are open, as the pubs are open, as, as the parks reopen and things, that then eventually that changes. The key, and I always say that this is the, the, the key to this thing is going to be behavioural change. We didn't kiss each other on the cheek when we, when we met this afternoon. Paul and I usually shake hands and hug it out for a long time, longer than a lot of people should, they say, but we didn't today. Um, I, 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 I said before, I don't plan on shaking a hand until well into 2021. That's the one thing that I'm going to change, but I won't stop going to the pub. But when I go to the pub, I'm going to make sure that the cutlery is presented to me in one of those little paper things. And th- those are those little behavioural changes that are going to change. The difference is now there will be another outbreak. There will be a second wave. There may already be a second wave. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens in America with a few hundred thousand people who have all been spitting and screaming on each other for a few days, uh, rightly or wrongly, but either way, we're about a week and a half away from finding out what that has, what that will become. We are in it. Uh, the second wave is very much upon us. The difference is that the hospitals are now ready, and the people are now ready for it. That's that's the main difference. Whereas they weren't before. They are they are ready to accommodate um, this second wave. So to keep it more upbeat, we're going to find out what happens. But uh, but as behaviours change, it means that places will open and they will reopen. So I, I don't mind that idea of the. What is it like a sawtooth? Bart Simpson head, I think, is yes. so that someone else has described it that way. Because you've got to keep it retail for me, you know. This one, but yeah. So, so on that side, it'll it'll bounce up. The other side, and I think I've mentioned this too, is that Morgan Stanley um, was saying, and they use this really easy terms of just going this this quick inflationary burst. As again, always trying to look for the upside. The inflationary burst is when you go to the restaurant, you're going to order dessert, and it's going to have. Give me an extra scoop of ice cream, please. I think I've earned this. I've deserved this. Not that we all need the extra scoop of ice cream. Trust You'll me. also order two desserts because yep. you won't want to share spoons. Oh no, yeah, that's a good <laughs> point too. It's that, and, and it's and it's. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week. It's I need. I'm going to have another two nights stay in that in that hotel because I've earned it. Because you know this is our holiday, and I I need to break out. But there's not enough ice cream to be presented. They still don't have Carlton Draft at my local pub. As soon as they do, everyone is going to get a Carlton Draft because we've really, really wanted one to be poured on tap. It's that little inflationary burst. And so that's just going to send prices up. That's the way that they see it, really, really in the short term. Yeah, and there's plenty of cash sitting around. People are ready to spend, you know, as we said. We noted they've been saving some money and they've got, yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the challenges – I absolutely agree. Um, I think one of the challenges is trying to think about which of these behavioural changes will be sustained, you know, and, and which are temporary but will revert. So I'm not sure we'll ever shake hands again. Um, so, but from a consumer point of view, like what are your permanent changes in behaviour? I mean, I find it remarkable in the space of about a week, Australians changed how they eat, shop, work, entertain, exercise. I mean, every element of your life has shifted uh, so, so it is that question of kind of temporary versus permanent. I think that's one of the most interesting things. Um, we'll be surveying every month. It's actually a global survey, uh, but statistically significant for Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so we'll be able to not just look at how Australians are changing their behaviour, but actually how that may be the same or different from other economies around the world. And does it go into, um, does this sort of sector by sector breakdown in terms of consumer interests or is it? So it's pretty comprehensive. Um, it's everything from how do you feel about your finances? Are you worried about COVID? Which of these activities would you be interested in doing? There's also a whole section around buying behaviour. So not just the obvious, are you buying more online? 
clearly. I mean, the postman comes to my house kind of every day. Um, but also, uh, you know, are, are you prepared to pay more to buy Australian, which sort of goes to James's point? Um, or are you more brand loyal? Do you care more about where your products come from? So actually quite a wide range of insights. Yeah, so and um, I suppose one other aspect of this is uh, Australia doesn't have any experience uh, in the modern economic times, I suppose, with the current uh, trade mix, industry mix in the economy. You know, we haven't for three decades, effectively. Um, I thought it was funny during the week, you know, Josh Frydenberg getting us for treasurer, are we in a recession? <laughs> you know, like, um, uh, you know, look outside, is it raining? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, every business you can think of is closed. Yes, we are in a recession. What do you think? You want me to say it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's well, right. We can get caught up on the definition there, but clearly we are in recession. Yeah. Um, but so, so, so we have um, a workforce that largely um, hasn't been through this. Um, Australians of a certain vintage, uh, I'm glad to say all of us included, uh, haven't um, worked through one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so... Um, and I think there's, you know, there's an interesting, you know, question about like the skills to steer a business through a recession um, are very specific. You know, cutting fast so that your business doesn't go pop, um, uh, but then making necessary changes to adapt uh, and uh, set yourself up properly on the other side. Um, like, do, have we got, you know, does our management um, cohort? Uh, have that skill. You know, we're not going to find this out for a long time. We don't know uh, what's been going on inside. Um, the difference with this one... Hundreds of thousands of businesses around the country. Throw, throw into the mix with this one is that whereas in a recession, like a normal uh, run-of-the-mill meat and potatoes recession, that you'd ha- just have cutbacks and then people cut back because people cut back and other places cut back and it's, it's, it's like you've explained to me that nobody knows exactly how bad a recession really is. With this one, a lot of it is, is physically stuff can't move. The, the, the physically can't get people to go to India to pick mangoes, for example. This is, I've, I've got a big food thing going on at the moment and, and that's what it is. So as opposed we've to we've shut parts of our economy. Yeah. I don't think we've ever done that before. Literally told a business, you legally cannot operate. I mean, yeah. It's unimaginable from an economic perspective. Mm. So, so uh, Exactly. And, and on that note, sorry to just jump in, but recessions generally, I mean, like, like – most things in economics are cyclical. You have boom-bust cycles and recessions follow the good times and then invariably the good times come back. The thing is that, you know, Australia's had the perfect combination in terms of its particular set of circumstances. First, you had the bushfires, which we didn't even get the chance to, to tally up the numbers from, and there's only so much you can do, and the fiscal stimulus to rebuild did a little bit, maybe. But before you know it, you've got this COVID, and I know I'm probably repeating everything that you guys have just said in the last five minutes, but I think that really does and will determine the fact that we're not getting out of this in any sort of hurry. And when we do, it's going to look nothing like what it did, you know, the last time we got out 30-odd years ago when, when PJ Keating was in charge. So, yeah, that needs to be borne in mind. Uh, but I do want to, um, to, to throw in a, um, a positive observation is uh, how um, broadly, in broad terms, how well Australia has responded to this, right? Now, I don't want to be sitting in the corner going, Australia's done a great job. You know, it, this has been terrible. It has destroyed businesses, destroyed people's lives, put people on welfare who never imagined being in that situation. It has come as a shock. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously, you know, people who've died, people who've been sick. Um, it is, uh, this has been a very trauma, traumatic um, period for the country. 
But the way that the economy, I think, has responded to it uh, has been fairly remarkable. I couldn't agree more. So we've talked a lot about what's been bad or what hasn't gone right, but I guess just to highlight a few things that have gone well that we should be proud of, um, the stimulus has been put in place incredibly quickly. Now, it may not be perfect. Take JobKeeper, for example. You know, put in place in the matter of two or three days, became clear it was needed. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. Um, I think the coordination across different arms of government and different arms of policy levers, um, RBA, APRA, ASIC, federal government, state governments, um, I think, you know, we should be very proud of that. And I think it's made a really meaningful difference to our experience. I think we should also remember that while the economy wasn't firing on all cylinders, we did have the advantage of um, very robust balance sheets for our central bank, our government and our banks. Uh, And that is going to prove to be a game changer for us. Yeah, some of the best capitalised banks in the world, um, RBA, balance sheet, nothing really to to write home about at the time. Um, So no problem then when the RBA announces that it's going to start buying uh, bonds in in the secondary market. Um, and a little bit to play with, I suppose, in terms of interest rates. Well, you know, relative to... Relatively. <laughs> yeah. But lots of scope for fiscal policy. I mean, in, in the lead-up yeah. to this, we were fixated on, you know, all this terrible debt we've got, you know, government debt, debt's bad, we've got to pay it back. The, the truth is that net government debt in Australia, including the states, was less than 30% of GDP. Mm. It was about 110 or 20% in the US and the UK, about 80-odd in Germany and over 200 in Japan. So, you know, we're AAA rated uh, for a reason. Mm. Um, it's been uh, – it, it has been – like there's been a lot of those very positive aspects to it. The other thing that I think has been interesting to me as an observer has been um, the – uh, way it has clarified the importance of government in the economy. Um, so uh, the, the importance of go- government, but also the importance of the consumer. Let me talk about the government first. So so even all of those people who would traditionally be saying government needs to get out of the way, you know, less government in the economy is a really good thing, you know, uh, were sort of begging for intervention, you know, uh, on, on a massive scale. Um, when all of this when all of this happened, because they knew, and government is the only thing that can deliver uh, this kind of impact across the economy Absolutely. in a coordinated um, uh, and rapid way. Um, so that, I thought that was really interesting, and that was re- um, reflected in um, uh, in countries around the world. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was how it reflected the primacy of the consumer uh, and the the people uh, in the economy you shut the consumer down you shut the economy down and i think too often consumers that's you and me um are kind of ignored uh in terms of a policy priority because there are you know uh, well-funded um uh, resourceful smart people who who want who, who seek to sort of uh gain um privileged positions uh, in terms of policy or they want policy to public policy to sort of bend in their direction right and consumers kind of often get a bit of a raw deal um, in, in the process so um, I think if there's one thing look hope is not a strategy but if there's one thing I hope that comes out of this um, 
and maybe I'll have to sort of put in place a bit of a, 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 a more thought around how this becomes clear. But um, uh, clearly, I do because I'm rambling now. Um, so, <laughs> but do you want me to jump yeah. in? Anytime. <laughs> I, 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 I tell you yeah. something that's happened to me this sure. week, right? Which yeah. goes to your point about the consumer gets forgotten. And that is, if we go back to the GDP numbers, right? So you've heard me say consumption's about 60% of economic activity. We don't talk about it enough, right? But um, net exports contributed to economic growth in the quarter. Contribution of 0.5 percentage points, which is enormous. Someone said to me straight after the numbers, someone that is trained in this field, um, one of my, my juniors went, wow, look at the net exports. Our export sector, it must be firing. And people generally, when I'm out and about talking to, to clients and to C-suite people and board directors, you know, we often talk about exports, right? We talk about iron ore, we talk about education and tourism, we talk about the importance of China. The reason net exports added to economic growth was not because of exports. Exports fell in the quarter. It's because imports collapsed. And imports collapsed because the Australian consumer pulled in. They reined right in. And now we also had supply disruptions and other things, but it, it just, I think it really highlights that the domestic economy is really important. And yet we talk about the export economy all the time, right? Um, I think also on government, uh, I'm kind of I'm glad you raised that because we know that BAU will never look the same again. I mean, I feel like that's one of the most overused comments around at the moment. We don't really know what it'll look like, but one of the themes that I am running um, at the moment is one of the things that will change is we will get a greater concentration of government, not just in the economy, but in our capital markets. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, th- that'll be the, the, the key takeaway, and, and this is where your, your expertise comes in on this one, but the key takeaway, and this, this brings to the, to the demographic shift, the political demand that we'll make is for us to we need to be doing – is that what you're going? Doing yeah. more of our own stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We need to be doing more of our own stuff. And and it, it will just be this – that'll be the behavioural change along with bumping elbows. It'll be like, I'm okay buying from Australia. We need to start making our own stuff here and, and, and that'll be it. It's, that's, it, it's, it's, it's bad enough that the supply chain situation – I want to talk about supply chains, but, the, but it's bad enough that it's, it's difficult to get stuff here um, – and, and if that does happen again, and it will happen again, there will be more forms of this virus and different forms of this virus and things will shut down again. I can guarantee that. Um, that, yeah, it, no country wants to be left in the dark with their pants down, un, unexpected, and people will say, you've had this happen to you before and now you're leaving us like this again. Yeah, you didn't do anything. You didn't that. do anything. No one wants to be like that again. It's, it's, it's just that situation. No one wants to be caught unprepared. No one wants to be. It's, it's go, it goes back to the mangoes. I'm going to I'm going to take the other side of that, James. All right, that's <clears throat> I, uh, j- just simply because I, I agree to a point. Uh, I think there will be an element of uh, self sufficiency or, or an attempt to move in that direction based on you know the disruptions we've seen. But I, I, I just don't think you can discount the complacency of human nature and the fact that you know stuff will be available. It might take a couple of days longer to get it, or or you know it might be out of stock this week. But just wait next week, and you know. Uh, you know, th- this is ingrained. This is ingrained in in the Amazon culture that we live in. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously, I'm, I'm here in Amsterdam, and things are a little bit different. Supply chains are probably a little bit less uh, less busted up than they are to to uh, Australia. But even so, I can't imagine that outside of the initial reticence that, well, who knows where this has come from, and do they have uh, another flare up of COVID over there, and am I risking? you know, by buying something from overseas. I think outside of that, I think there's very little to really, over the long and medium terms, I think there's going to be very little to deter people and incentivize them outside of government intervention to actually build up local industry or local supply chains or whatever it is to to replace the, the global supply chains we're seeing. I think geopolitical risk has more of a bearing to breaking up supply chains than does uh, the current environment. So if, you put, if I put an economic lens on it, for me it's um, this, this balance between uh, you should only manufacture what you have a comparative advantage in or what you really, really can't afford to be reliant on other people. Um, so I, I sort of have a foot in each camp. I mean, I think you want to make sure that you've got ventilators for your people. But um, other than that, I think you still want to keep a really strict eye on anything that you onshore that you're doing it for the right reason. And I think also to your point, actually, global protectionism is one of the biggest risks that we're not really talking about at the moment. We're talking everything COVID, but that was a trend that was in place already. We were seeing, you know, the peak of globalisation, protectionism. People talk about the US and China, but, you know, Japan and South Korea were also having a trade dispute for a small, open-facing economy, and we have no choice to be open-facing because we are small, um, I think that's a trend that we want to keep a really close eye on. Yeah, and let's not forget some of the benefits of that is that, um, you know, um, uh, globalisation at scales allows for a very high degree of specialisation in individual economies in terms of what they produce. Um, and in order to replace that, what you're probably going to do is have to build inferior products elsewhere. Um, and that has consequences for manufacturing, I'm, I'm just, capability, uh, output, yeah. you know. Just, just on Joe's, just in Joe's point of comparative advantage. Look, I agree 100. percent I mean, I remember, you know, uh, economics at high school and certainly economics at university, l- learning about the, the local uh, experience in Australia. I mean, we had, you know, we were leaders in the space industry. I think in the what was it, 50s, 60s. Where did that go? We used to make cars. We used to do this, that, and the other. Uh, but we were also, as a nation, back back in those days, and certainly through the 60s and 70s, uh, the biggest biggest proponents of protectionism i mean if you look at the textiles and clothing industry and and the tariffs and everything that, that, that was employed i mean comparative advantage yeah it looks nice in a textbook but seriously so i think that is the backdrop culturally and economically and, and now we're what 50 odd years later 70 years later i mean sorry but do me a favor like we're we're definitely in no place to be talking about you know uh, the 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 downside of protectionism or, or the you know so the, and that's part and parcel of why I think Australia of all of all economies is is probably not in a place to be talking about you know lo- local comparative advantage so anyhow but that's just me yeah well I mean so there are there are some things where where Australia is unbeatable resources tourism um, you know uh, English speaking financial services hub in Asia. Um, education. That kind of education, you know, that that that, that stuff is, um, I, you know, I, it's very extremely hard to compete with. Maybe Singapore in some ways, um, um, you know, and you know, frankly, there's been a long discussion in Australia for some years now. Uh, and Malcolm Turnbull brought this up, and he, I'm sorry to say this, but, but you know, people who you know have 
you know, who Malcolm Turnbull, you know, is like running nails down a board to some people. I know that, but he was right about um, diversifying the economy, um, getting better capital, healthier capital markets, um, building um, the uh, the right kind of skill sets, uh, and making the economy more agile. Uh, there was the, so put away the way it was sold and and the fact that <laughs> it was it you know, disruption. You know, <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> but like, so I think that's a really interesting point, though, right? So if you look at the Global Innovation Index, um, Australia ranks, I think it's fourteenth uh, or sixteenth. We're the fourteenth largest economy in the world, so I don't know. Kind of sounds okay. Really? Yeah, yeah, but it but. But if you look at our ranking for what they call innovation efficiency, which is basically your ability to commercialise it, we rank down in the 70s. So if I think about, okay, we're not going to build cars again. Um, If I think about what does the new Australia look like, well, first of all, let's let's fix some of that bit, right? Like we're actually quite innovative, but we're just not commercialising it. And I think another example of a sector that I actually think uh, has been quite exciting in the last few years but often flies under the radar is the export of health uh, healthcare services, right? So, I don't know, when I was at uni, we would have called healthcare non-tradable. Like, you can't export it, right? But now you can export it. It's part of our um, free trade agreement with China. Uh, we have Chinese um, middle class that are coming to Australia for world-class knee and hip replacements, just as young Aussies are going to Thailand for cheap plastic surgery. But, you know, that's an industry where we actually are innovative, we are strong, we are safe. Um, It's just not very big. And often things get dwarfed by um, the mining sector. But there are things that we are really good at. So how can we become... I hate to use the word productive and I feel like, you know, productivity reforms sort of very overused and often misunderstood and we haven't done a lot on it. But literally, let's let's just get the cogs moving. Let's get business doing what business can do. Let's make the most yeah. of the innovation we've got. I mean, Wi-Fi, an Australian invention. Yeah. You know, like it's, the list goes on and on. But we are... We are actually a pretty innovative, cool nation. We just got to do more with it. Yeah, often don't. You, you, you're gonna you're gonna need a third political party to get that done because well, the Libs aren't gonna do it. Labor's gonna do everything just to, pardon my French, piss the yeah, piss Libs off and move to the centre of of whatever road they both happen to be on. It's, it ain't gonna happen. I'm sorry to say it, and, and like I don't mean to be negative Nancy here, but guys, let, let's just take a step back and think about the reality. Yeah, COVID, it's put a shock through the global economy, certainly through the Australian domestic economy, but we're talking about like generational, multi-decade change. That yeah, I, I just don't see the, the motivation, you know, domestically for that to happen. Well, so- it's not, it's not. But some parts of this economy are going to have to start getting rebuilt, and there's. Plenty yeah, of capacity sure, yeah. to move skills and capital around at the moment, you know, change that, change those mixes. Um, I genuinely, um, I mean, even just the start of this conversation, you know, my, uh, when I think about, you know, what, what we're staring down for Q2, you know, it's horrendous. Oh, the data flow over the next little while is going to be incredibly confronting. Hmm. Every data point, you know, it's going to be worse since the 30s, never seen before, shockingly bad, all of those sort of things. Um, I think, like, if we talk about a more efficient economy, one of the things that I I didn't mention before that we have seen in COVID, though, is that we've seen a whole heap of 
regulations be eased overnight, things that were unimaginable, right? So we allowed deliveries to walk to supermarkets overnight. We extended trading hours of what was suddenly deemed to be essential services. We allowed restaurants to provide um, cocktails by takeaway, one of my personal favourites. Um, but, like, they are things that if you'd asked for that six months ago, you just never would have got anywhere, and we did them overnight. So... One of the things, and again, to use the word hope, I hope is that if we look back and go, none of those things caused a problem, we should just leave them. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. Um, British Columbia in Canada in the early 2000s instigated a policy around regulation that was one in, two out. They have halved the red tape burden in their economy. I've heard about that. Yeah, it is very it is very interesting. It, it it was amazing the way that everyone managed to, to react as quickly as they could and, and and to get it and to get it done. I will always be impressed by the fact that having been at big companies and you've been at big companies too, Joe, Paul. I think you've worked at a, at one or two large operations. <laughs> and so, how quickly how quickly IT departments managed to get everyone working from home within hours and this would have been months of trying to get with things, no meetings with no meetings at all. And then all of a sudden, I. I there's a whole a whole middle management sector that could probably just be not asked to come back to work when everyone starts <laughs> to go back language. to work. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, uh, and like the one in two out thing on regulation, I, you know, really it really does you know push my buttons. And I think that's one of the other things that is worth saying about government. You know, like well, lots of people talk about the need for less and less regulation, and it's um it is amazing. I hope this is one of the things that we keep focused on it is amazing how we can sometimes tie ourselves a knot with simple economic reforms um like for example in being able to enjoy a cocktail at home like um you know there would have been you know a four-day media war you know shots fired radio interviews all that kind of stuff you know whereas in this case minister just the state government just does a stroke of a pen no problems you know nobody died we're all good you know, so well, not just good. I think some people are very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, now, um, just quickly, uh, want to ask all of you the idea of negative rates in Australia, right? So, um, just as part of this other economic, uh, the, the policy toolbox, I suppose, if you like, um, uh, RBA is kind of pretty much out of ammo. Negative rates are next. Um, Joe, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, the debate's kind of heating up on that again. My own personal view is that we should avoid it really unless we have absolutely no other choice. And at this point, we don't have no other choice but because we could expand and extend our yield to um, curve control. For me, um, the, the costs of negative interest rates outweigh the benefit and a lot of that comes back to the point that James made earlier on, that our household sector is indebted. So you can cut rates all you like, but it's not necessarily going to encourage people to borrow. And do we want to encourage our household sector to borrow when debt is already so high? And then from a corporate perspective, um, I mean, it's really interesting. I had a really interesting conversation the other day about hurdle rates, right? So interest rates have come down, particularly for small businesses, um, but hurdle rates have gone up because uncertainty is so high. Really? Right, so your hurdle rate's made up of. You know, I mean, I'll leave it to James to explain, but the, the risk premium is a really important part, right? So it's interest rate plus plus your risk outlook. The risk outlook has blown out. So you know, if you cut rates from minus point two five to uh, sorry, from point two five to minus point two five, it's, it's not going to offset the risk the the risk premium no. part of that hurdle at the moment. I just can't see businesses today thinking that they've got the environment to invest. So for me, 
I'd much rather see something that helps confidence and I actually think negative interest rates would not confidence, not help confidence. Well, well that's, I find that fascinating just because hurdle rates were a point of um, uh, contention for, for Glenn Stevens. Yes. Years ago, he was, he was complaining about corporate Australia not, not lowering its hurdle rates um, as he was cutting interest rates. So your hurdle rate for an investment case to get greenlit might be seven and a half or something yep. or, or nine. So it's still pretty high um, in Australia, typically still in the double digits. Really? Um, and actually there's some RBA survey from, it's a bit dated now, 2016, but nonetheless, the, their survey showed that most Australian firms rarely review their hurdle rates. Now, that, maybe that'll be something that changes in the COVID environment. Maybe, maybe we should maybe go down to the um, the Institute of Company Directors and um, start asking around a few of the board members. Yeah, hey, how are your hurdle rates? Yeah. What do you reckon? Um, see if they even know what they are. Um, there is that. I, I, there's, there's a couple of things that, and this same thing happened in Europe, I believe, and also now that some of the fund managers, fund managers that run money markets as well, they've, they've had to cut their fees because the rates are so low in that money market that they're actually then going to start charging clients for it. The, the problem with the negative rates is that no bank is going to let it pass through to the actual retail client, therefore it's, it's a redundant point. Um, so that's, that's where it sort of goes. But the fact that we're talking about it, I mean, let's talk about the premise here. It's, it's asking, do you want to be hit with a tree, tra- tree branch or with a stick? Why, why are we, like, the, yeah. the, the two choices in front of you, are, it's, it's bizarre. Why don't we just... This is going to sound a bit libertarian, a bit a bit laissez-faire, but why why don't we just why do we have to keep fiddling with things? So I, I would <laughs> prefer to see. Well, I actually think that's a good point, right? Because one of the things we need to do is stabilize confidence. One of the ways you stabilize confidence is by having a very clear path, right? So I would prefer to see the message, which is what we've had. Uh, you know, the cash rate's point two five, and it's going to stay there for several years, and. I would then prefer to see the economy supported through fiscal policy, even if it means our government debt is, you know, another third bigger than we think it's going to be. Interesting. Um, we'll cert- it's a certainly a topic that we'll be uh, returning to again and again. Um, okay, you're listening to the BIP show. Uh, and uh, just, Ken, um, we just touching on negative rates. Um, we had the ECB this week. Do you want to take us through what they're doing? Another absolute massive uh, bazooka from... Um, from Christine Lagarde and Co. Yeah, I think, um, well, in, in very simple terms, they've announced yesterday another 600 yards, 600 billion of this uh, special program that they call PEP. Uh, I forgot what the acronym stands for, but something, a, a pandemic uh, uh, protection, something planned, basically just pump more cash into the uh, into the economy. Uh, the market was expecting a range of anywhere between 500 and 750. Uh, they got 600. Um, and alongside of that, they basically alluded to the fact that they will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes and when they deem that it's no longer appropriate they're still not going to remove the uh, the punch bowl they'll only diminish how much is in the punch bowl until such time as they need it again um, in in real terms that means that the currency is actually appreciated the euro moves significantly higher which is sort of counterintuitive based on the fact that you know you, you're debasing the, the value of money in many ways you're making it even cheaper but in actual fact uh, we've got to acknowledge the fact that we live in a uh, do whatever it takes world be it in Europe be it in the US Australia wherever and this uh, was seen by the market as doing whatever it takes and doing so intelligently and more to the point putting the ECB 
ahead of the curve that everyone had perceived they were behind. So net net, uh, buy everything you can get your hands on, be it European or elsewhere, because risk is back. So for um, now, <laughs> maybe you can give us a bit of a picture for for how how it looks um, around the houses there. Um, you know, um, Germany was looking very fragile, even the end of last year, start of this year. Um, you know, how's it, how's it all shaking down? What are the economies like on the ground? Are the things grinding to a halt? Do they look like they're going to have monster recessions? What's, what's going on? Um, I think sporadically you will have recessions. As, as, as a whole block, as the EU, you'll probably maybe get a technical one. I mean, obviously growth globally and, and Europe is not, in, you know, um, immune to it, uh, has suffered and will continue to suffer over the course of, the, of this year. Uh, but net-net, I mean, I think, you know, the the stalwart powerhouses, economic powerhouses of uh, of Europe have maintained that footing to a degree in relative terms. Germany is still doing all right, obviously not as well as it was. Uh, France faring a little worse. The southern nations, um, I think, surprisingly, they might come out of this better than most expect, not least of which because of uh, actions out of the ECB and certainly uh, spreads and, and, the, and the borrowing costs uh, having diminished for them so significantly uh, over the course of the last uh, 12, 18 months. Um, it's just a case of being willing to spend whatever money they can raise at those cheap rates. And, and that, but, that, but again, that, that's always been the issue. So I think there is, however... At least a bit more, um, yeah, you know, a, a bit more initiative to do that. We'll see how it unfolds. But net net, I think Europe is, in the scheme of things, doing all right, or will be doing all right. We just have to see what, if anything, this second wave down the road is gonna is gonna look like. And look, from there, what I might do is head a bit further west and talk about what's happening in the United States. Um, because we need to talk about it, right? Um, yeah. You have this dissonant thing going on when you turn on the TV um, on CNN and, and there's a riot, there's, you know, um, police standing alongside soldiers, tear gas. Um, uh, and then you flick over to CNBC and there's headlines about, you know, record streak gains in the S&P 500. Now, look, yes, we all understand that, you know, markets are forward-looking and all of that kind of thing. Um, but there's an important aspect to this, which is... Um, the political po- policy dynamic. Um, we have a president in the White House whose economic policies have determined the shape of the, the global economy for a long time, and there is an election in November. So maybe, Joe, um, can I start with you? How, how do you think about it? What framework are you using to sort of look at this? Yeah, um, I mean, all frameworks are, are pretty tricky at the moment, and I think the US one is even less clear. Um as you said, we've got a president who is um, far from conventional, uh, t- to say the least. Um, but we've also got this groundswell of discontent, which is we're seeing today, but actually has been building and, and building and building. So really polarised population, actually, um, which which is pretty concerning and, and a lot of pretty big structural challenges against the backdrop of an already indebted House um, government and a very indebted corporate sector, uh, actually, and quite a lot of poor quality corporate debt, uh, which is going to raise some sort of economic growth challenges for them down the track. Um, not really sure what else to say beyond that. I mean, I worry about I worry about the US. Um, 
on on so many levels and I think what you're seeing at the moment is distressing and it's not easily resolvable because I think there's actually some really underlying um, yeah. issues with the population. Yeah. I mean, look what happens when you get you get 40-something million people recently unemployed uh, with nothing – I don't want to say it's because, because people have got nothing to do but physically when you – you know, you've been restricted for that amount of time, and you've got the the, the basic underlying social changes that, that that just there's a whole there's a whole demographic of people in the states that have just been left behind that, that are barely counted, uh, if if that, um, and and that's where that comes from, from doing my job point of view of what I you know what what, what I invest in and what I don't. We, there's no there's no reason to be selling because of it. There's no obviously you need to stay concerned. The key thing that I've said if Bernie Sanders was the presidential candidate or the, 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 that he was an actual viable choice, I would be selling this market pretty substantially because that's, that's the big message. That, that the only time that it is there, that, that this is the message that is telling you that the other guy is a real chance of being elected and that's when you get that populist, socialist side of things and, and, the, and the changes that he would make would not be very market-friendly. So as it, as it stands now, status quo for us, um, we are obviously observing it rather rather uh, very closely. I've had a few ethical – I wanted to talk about a few ethical conversations that I've had with myself about investing in it and just the way that I've invested through 2020. Uh, it's, it's a weird way that I make the decision about whether I'm going to make investments when, it, when a thing happens and why I'm making an investment when that thing happens. The bushfires, uh, a few opportunities were presented to me from the bushfires in, in the agricultural sector. I didn't take a single one of them. Um, and I won't say if they were, they were long or short, but I did not make money from from things that happened through the bushfires. So I, feel, I feel pretty proud about that. When COVID hit, I absolutely did. Um, that was just that was a different situation. It was things like buying puts on the airlines and and and, and obviously selling the market and, and and for a time shorting the market too. That was just that was that for me. It was a different situation. With this one, an opportunity that was presented a few days ago was um, uh, gun manufacturers in the states, and I absolutely turned that down. I I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, as a, uh, I would rather be invested in, um, say, healthcare because of COVID, right? It's it's, it's actually things that things that are going up. Um, and uh, I hope your clients applaud you for that, James. It's actually a really compelling story. Um, of it's, ethical investment. I think it's really important. Yeah, it, it it doesn't have to be in a special fund. It's just the conversations that I have with myself and 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 and, and as the team as well. I just go, are we actually going to make money from this thing? That's not right. I, don't, I won't feel good doing that. I won't feel good if I bought if I actually went. You know, long the equity in Sturm Ruger or Smith and Wesson, and actually, and, and did that, and those stocks have absolutely gone amazingly well over yeah. the last few days. Yeah, and I, I just don't want to make money doing that on the whole. Um, so um, there's there's that, and th- th- that's a conversation. But on the whole, no reason to be selling this market at the time. Um, it's status quo. I hope that I just hope that it's it all works itself out pretty well. But it's it, it, I don't think that it'll really change anything inherently in the way that America runs. Ken, do you think the politics think, matters? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was just going to pop in there. I mean, look, I, I think there are a couple of things here. If we talk about the social uh, unrest and the social impact, or rather, the impact of everything we're seeing. I don't mean to be callous. I don't mean to be potentially politically incorrect or paint a target on my back. But honestly, it just doesn't matter. I, I, I desperately wish it did and I desperately wish it would change 
you know the 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 environment over the over the whatever term but right now and probably over the medium term, it just doesn't matter we've seen it before we've seen different iterations globally it does not matter it 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 pops it fizzles there's plenty of reason for it to happen but it doesn't matter uh and certainly i'm and i'm talking about the market impact over the immediate and medium terms longer term what i know the the other impact that it is having from a political stance um, is uh, yeah, uh, Biden is is obviously going to be the the Democratic uh, nominee, um, and his popularity has increased by by virtue of the fact that Trump's in the last X number of days in the polls has actually decreased. The market doesn't care, taken in its stride, and honestly, James, to your point, even if it were Bernie Sanders, um, until such time as he were elected, and even then. I'm not sure that there'd be a massive market impact. And if there were, it'd be a little bit of a, a jag and then off we go back to because, you know, things go on. He's not. He was never going to turn America into Cuba, um, certainly not into Soviet Russia, but he's not part of the equation anymore. It doesn't matter. Biden might be a bit more or a bit less business friendly or whatever it may be. Uh, but again, it doesn't matter until such time as the proof is in the pudding. And even then, I think the market will probably absorb a lot of that. And the term structure actually that we're seeing across the curve, across the VIX curve and whatever else, has, has you know, swallowed and, and uh, accepted the potential for a Biden presidency. Um, and, you know, so what? Here we are. So it's not that it doesn't matter. It's just that, as we discussed last week, the repricing of events, be they political, economic or whatever, these days is so much more jagged and so much more erratic. And it just happens in a big pop and then off we go. Whereas previously it was over an arc and things developed and people got in and out. Whereas now it's just bang and you're done. And so the reprice hasn't happened yet. Will it? Maybe. Let's see why or when rather. Uh, and I think, look, it's one of the reasons we started this show really. It's um, such an interesting time in the world. We're rebuilding this whole, re- re- you know, the global economy is going to change a lot. Um, and uh, it's things like this, this US election, I think we want to look at. Uh, and get some of the finest minds uh, that um, we can uh, in on the show to talk about how they think it looks like and hopefully make this show useful on a regular basis to the people who listen. Uh, which, so before I forget, um, don't forget to, uh, we're on iTunes, Spotify, all those places, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us, subscribe, and leave us a review. It all really does help. Now, um, Joe. Uh, one thing that one area that you're very active in, and I'm very conscious that um, we're having this conversation with three guys, um, but one area that you've been very active in in a long time, um, uh, particularly after being a bit of a trailblazer yourself um, uh, in the financial industry here in Sydney, uh, is women in economics, in the finance industry, etc. Um, so, um, what are the what's the activity? I think it's you know it's it's very important. I think everybody um, knows this is. Uh, burning issue for the industry. Um, so, so what's happening in the space at the moment? Yeah. So the good news is um, that it's three blokes and me, not four blokes sitting here. So you know, so we're we're making lots of progress. Um, <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, and look, it's pretty standard now, and and this has changed in the last I don't know, pick your number, three to five years. That it would be. You know, most people organising an event or writing a journalistic article will be thinking about 
um, the diversity of thought that they're bringing to that piece. And I, I try to talk about that diversity of thought rather than specifically around gender. Gender is one element to it, but uh, there's many others, right? Um, and actually, one, one of the reasons I uh, was keen to take my job at EY is, was to work with um, a, a broader range of the way people think, um, pretty much. Uh, I love financial markets. I love trading floors. Um, but, you know, kind of everyone has the same background uh, and everyone sort of thinks the same. So, you know, one of the great things has been to be challenged by people that have a different background or think differently, whether that's tax or advisory or, you know, even audit and assurance. Um, so, so I think that diversity of thought is really important. Um, I think for the financial industry, you know, one of the things we have to remember is it's really important to make progress, but it's also important to recognise that you can't change overnight. Um, so, so we are building a really strong pipeline of talented women and they are being um, sought out and recognised and rewarded uh, and I think that's really important. I still personally encourage young women to make sure that they speak out. You know, at the end of the day, you have to take some responsibility uh, for your own career. So one of the things I say to to young uh, women who I think are talented and I respect is I'll say to them, if you've had a thought and you're 30% sure that I would want to hear it, I absolutely want to hear it, right? Um, if you're 10% sure... If I'm not busy, tell me. <laughs> um, you know, but like the bar is not 100%, the bar is 30%. Uh, so I think we need to really, really do that. Um, I think we talk a lot about networking. Uh, and one of the things I'm trying to do is we tend to focus on networking up. Um, and look, I, I try to be as generous as I can with my time. Uh, but actually, I, I, as I get older, I'm starting to think one of the most important networks is your peer network. And, and this is true for for men as well as women, um, but it's incredibly important for women because of the headwinds that they do continue to face. Uh, so your peers, right, are like in Australia, in the future, you will either work with them, work for them, or they will work for you, or they will be a client, mm. pr- pretty much. Or a rival. Or Yeah, right, or a competitor. So, um, And also, um, as you make big decisions through your career, you want to get the viewpoint of someone who has known you and is at a similar level. So, for example, for me, with my role with EY, I, I have an external mentor uh, who's amazing uh, and obviously uh, very influential in my decisions. But one of the things I did is I went back and talked to um, two economists that I had started my career with that I'm still in touch with. And I just wanted to get a sounding board of kind of what they thought and how they thought about it. And I think that's really, really critical. Uh, so we need to continue to do that. So... Look, that's a really long answer to when you said a, sh- a, a short question, but um, I, I think we're, we're, we're moving forward. I think we do, in the light of COVID, the challenge is going to be to keep finding enough headspace to make sure that you're conscious of it mm. and the gender lens that, that you put on things. Um, and I think I don't think the playing field is level, but I think it's becoming more level. That's right. And, and I suppose that's the thing is, you know, is it important that it doesn't get lost sight of because there are urgent business pressures, you know, that there does need to be some consideration for all of those things that we've been talking about for years as being deeply important. And if we can't hold on to those things while we go through a crisis, then, um, you know, well, that would be a pretty grave mistake, I think. Absolutely. And look, I mean, this is nothing new. Everyone's talking about it. But clearly COVID will accelerate the work from home. I've got lots of friends in the financial industry that Mm. had never worked a day from home. Uh, that will be a good thing because what we see 
and we continue to see it. This is one thing that hasn't changed is we still get this dip in female participation uh, in that sort of 30, you know, 30 to 40 year category when people have typically have young children uh, who are wonderful and we don't, we don't want to stop that. But those years are really challenging. Um, you know, I've, I've been there, uh, really, really challenging. And yet that's a time in your career where you're often accelerating. So what happens is, you know, that the, the male's career accelerates because you, you're actually starting to get a bit of experience. You've got some actual value add. You're still cheap enough that you can accelerate. Um, but that's actually the time when women take their foot off the pedal. So this move to work, um, work from home and work flexibly, it's not just work from home, but work flexibly, uh, I hope is game changing for that category. Yeah, even just a, just a straight shaving two hours a day of your commute so that you can take care of that family stuff, that's, that's the flexible side. So you can still, because that is the earnings, that's the golden time in your, in your earnings capacity and in your career-wise movement as well. That's, that's the absolute golden time, was for me, yep. and, and it is for a lot of people. You know, obviously, this is finance. It, when you're in that 30s, you're in that sweet spot, yep. just enough experience, just old enough, not too cynical yet. Um, yeah, you that's know. right. Still taking a bit of risk. You're a bit gung-ho. Yeah. You've got a few um, grey hairs. Yeah. You might have been through, might have been through half a cycle. And, yeah. and there you go. And I, I, you're right. I hate it when it, it, it pauses. Oh, she's got to have kids now. So that's it. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Now, to round it out, I did just – and I am opening my notebook. I just wanted to quote a fact from the new ABS household survey, which is in response to COVID. Um, a shout-out to the ABS. Done an amazing job. You know, all of a sudden, yeah. we've got preliminary retail trade data and business surveys and household yeah. surveys. And, you know, well done, ABS. Always yeah. Incredible. I was on a call ahead of the GDP numbers – and they were talking about, you know, the um, statistical problems with statistical me- measurement of all the policies that have been announced. They have had to deal with over 300 policy announcements. So, you know, big round of applause. But in the last household survey, um, women are three times more likely to be looking after children full-time on their own than men. Well, isn't that to our... Shame. To the shame, yeah, it is. It's, it's, now, I'm um, sure that's not everyone, but not um, that just yeah. shows, like, you know, we, we have a way to go and part of uh, female partic- participation in the workforce is male participation yeah. in unpaid work. In unpaid and we know that, right? Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things um, I think in a note I sent around earlier, I was saying, you know, these are the things we, you know, let's wrap up the show talking about maybe some of the things we learned in lockdown. Um now, one of those things for me was uh, I definitely do not do enough around the house. Um, so one of the things that's been great, actually, has been getting better at um, my little four-year-old. Uh, there's a story uh, that I tell quite a lot, actually. Um, uh, it was when he was three. Uh, he, I was playing with him and I, we were playing Teddy is his name. We were playing Teddy and Daddy, but I was being him and he was being me. And he shuffled off into the study and he, he sat up in my chair and I, um, you know, and he was kind of tapping away at my computer. And I walked into the study on my knees and said, uh, um, hi, Daddy. And I said, one of the things he says, would, you know, do you want to come in the kitchen? Uh, and he turned around in the seat and lifted up his tiny little finger and his face kind of darkened. He thought about it very carefully and he said, no, Teddy, I've got to do some work. No. And he turned back no. to the computer and started tapping away on the screen. And now, 
yeah, that hit hey, Look, me we've all been there. If it makes you feel any better, <laughs> yeah. we've all been there. Yeah. I've had a few in this COVID lockdown. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but I do think, uh, I mean, my partner might disagree, but my wife might disagree, but she, I do think I've got a little bit better uh, in, this, in sort of being able to do both, you know, um, have the, the kids, you know, sitting on my shoulders while I do my work at my desk, et cetera. My seven-year-old has been joining uh, joining us while we're, while we're at home, while, she, while school was off. She's been joining me for the our daily investment committee meeting and she's learned some new words, which is good. Um, but she did, she did say, I want to I talk like you, Dad. And I thought that was pretty cool. That's so awesome. That's good. So another, and she's, she's a pretty cluey little kid too, so I uh, can't wait to have a, 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 a training up a new desk assistant to be in there. She's already got the language uh, sorted out. <laughs> we probably knows but, a lot so, about mangoes. Yeah, she knows she knows more about mangoes than she needs to. But yeah, it's 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 that. So yeah, more uh, more uh, more ass kicking women in finance. Yeah, I think my. I mean, I, I travel a lot, right? I'm on a typically on a plane every two, sort of two or four times a week uh, in this in this role. So I've, I've spent a lot of time at home. And in the first week, one of my teenage daughters said to me, "Is all you do all day talk to people?" Like. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I actually think um, one – there's lots of things in COVID that we've all learned that have been amazing. But for, for me, one of the really um, levelling things is, do you know, it's just shown that everyone is human. Yeah, yeah. You know, the CEO has a dog running past. Um, you know, people have got children crying in the background. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, everyone has been shown – we've shown a personal side to people – that we just didn't do at work. Whether that's how some people have dressed on Zoom, some of which is good and some of which is perhaps less so, or whether it's what's going on in the background, you're beaming into people's homes. It's actually yeah. highly personal. Yeah. Uh, and I actually think, um, particularly amongst senior people where, you know, I include myself, you don't always show that personal side of yourself. I think we, we've all become a bit more human. I've yeah. got to bring Ken in here. Ken, what's this? What's going through your mind as you listen to this? Uh, well, a couple of things. One is what, what have I learned from uh, from this whole COVID experience? I've learned that I look like an extremely well, very well nourished Tom Hanks from Castaway. Um, so uh, the antithesis of his dietary uh, habit is me, uh, multiplied tenfold probably. But the hairstyle, the beard, we're on. We're in. Uh, we're in. We're on par. Um, and you only managed to, to slip out once. Where were it this weekend? I'm working on it. There will be more. Just give me a chance. I really, really, really want to swear a lot more. <laughs> Just, you know. Hey, we talked about being human up. and showing your true self, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. Okay. Um, look, you've been listening to the BIP show. Um, our guest this week uh, has been Joanne Masters, Chief Economist at EY Oceania. Joanne, thanks so much for coming on to the show, giving you time. Uh, it's been great having you here. Oh, do you know, it's always good to talk to you all. It's one of my favourite podcasts and I wish you, you know, really well over this year as you build out some really important topics. Ripper and James Whelan, thank you. Now, a uh, little bit of trivia, if I may. What song, and I won't answer it, but... People who listen all the way through the, to the end of the show, congratulations, you have managed to get there. Now, if you'll provide the feedback to us, I'll buy you a schnitzel and a beer. What song got us out of our last recession in this country? So what was the number one song in Australia when, uh, when we were last in a recession? Because we're going to need to find a new hero now. Um, but thank you, Paul. It's been fantastic. 
Or, so there isn't a real answer to this, is there? There is an actual answer. What, what song was number one? I'm going to say I'm too young to remember. It's <laughs> a good song. It's a great song too. It's, it's, it's a beautiful Australian hit. But thanks, thanks, Paul. It's been uh, it's been another great week. Uh, Ken, thanks for joining us from Amsterdam as well. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, guys, and thank you, Joe. It's been uh, it's been very interesting. You can find us all on Twitter. You can follow us there. The Bip Show has an account too on uh, on the underscore Bip Show. Uh, you'll figure it out. Um, and we're also on Facebook. You can follow us there, and we'll you know we'll do some uh, things on there from time to time. And you can also reach us uh, through there. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, suggestions, topics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, carry on the conversation, uh, and we'll be back with you next week. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rip Salter. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.